Before we begin, um, three people independently, three people new to IMS, uh, were concerned about what to do if you had uh, strong emotion in the hall. That is, you really, uh, there was a strong urge to cry in the hall. And uh, we give you lots of guidelines, but we don't say anything about that. Um, I don't think it's a problem. That is, this hall has heard over the years, listened to lots of tears. The woods have probably heard more in some of the rooms, but it's, it certainly happens, and also laughter. So if it happens, it happens. I don't think you have to feel you've done something uh, wrong or, uh, or bad or anything of that sort. But of course, there's the problem of feeling inhibited and that you're interfering with other people or what other people will think of you. and So, by and large, if it's something that looks like it's going to go on for a while, or you can see that it's big, you're probably better off in your room. But we don't always have control. And so, if it should happen, it happens. And don't worry about us, because our practice will be practicing with that. If we're really upset by you being upset, that's our problem. Uh, some years ago, uh, when I was uh, practicing in Japan in a, in a Zendo, a Zen monastery, and uh, it was the middle of a retreat, very intense, and I had a big robe on, very long, and then a secondary thing, and a, third, uh, a special pin. And No, I don't mean to mock it, I just have to say what it was. And, uh, so as everyone else liked, uh, dressed that way, and... We were sitting there and I looked around and felt like I really knew who I was and felt connected to a great tradition and on and on. And then suddenly um, I was reminded that when I was growing up, in the early years, I had a cowboy outfit, a Tom Mix cowboy outfit. (laughs) And uh, I wouldn't separate from it. I mean... My parents had to do all kinds of things to get me to not go to sleep with it. Uh, it had two six-shooters and a big hat. <laughs> and when I had that outfit on, I knew who I was. <laughs> and what happened was, I just broke out in uncontrollable laughter in, in the meditation room. <laughs> Seriously. And uh, the thought, though, was, was my God. Here I am, a grown man, and nothing has changed. (laughs) I still want more and more outfits. Uh, So it doesn't end there. The next day, uh, I had an interview with the Zen master, who was really quite a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And we, you know, put on the gloves with the koan for a little while. And then at the end of it, he said, uh, what was all that laughter about? (laughs) By the way, when it happened, no one moved. You have to understand a Japanese endo. No one moved. I don't know what was going on inside, but it, it didn't, didn't affect that. It just... Uh, so I told him through a translator, and the translator had to go over it two or three times. <laughs> Especially who was Tom Mix. <laughs> and so I told him the story, and he didn't change his expression either. He just looked at me and he said, 
not good, not bad, rang the bell, <laughs> and I was kicked out. So uh, I think here you'll be more warmly received. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we've been <clears throat> practicing focusing exclusively on the breathing for uh, three days now, uh, with some exceptions when something becomes uh, problematic, as you know, as Michael went into last evening. But essentially, that's what we've been doing. And um, if you keep doing that, and I hope some of you who are really new to the practice have a little bit of faith, what starts to happen is the mind does settle down, the mind becomes concentrated, becomes steady, and uh, experiences a great deal of peace. The more concentrated, the more steady, the more peace. Um, it's not that you have to be so special. It can happen to you, to anyone, just ordinary people like ourselves, uh, if we apply ourselves to it. And so the peace that comes is quite fulfilling. If you haven't tasted any of it, uh, you will, if you keep practicing. And there's quite a range of depth to it. But this kind of peace is deluded peace. It has tremendous value because it really helps strengthen the mind and enable the mind to do insight work. But the kind of peace that comes about through samadhi, which is uh, our word for that kind of a stable mind, concentrated mind, one-pointed mind, uh, is deluded because it depends on being separated from many, many mind states that, that the mind is afraid of. So as long as we, when we become absorbed in the breath or metta or whatever, any object, uh, the peace that comes from it is dependent to some degree on our not being in touch, being separated from uh, so much that we're afraid of that's in our consciousness. And so um, that piece is a little different than the piece that comes about through wisdom, through panya, uh, where uh, the mind becomes fearless and can look at whatever turns up, and that's the whole point, to get free. So uh, we've been doing a certain kind of practice, and I, in saying this, don't mean to demean concentration because it's such an extraordinary prerequisite to doing uh, some very wonderful work in this practice. Uh, whatever degree of it you develop on this retreat will be helpful for you. But soon the instructions will change uh, breakfast time, the, the sitting after breakfast tomorrow. We're going to begin to open the field of attention uh, to include the full range of our experience. Uh, to uh, allow whatever is there to turn up. And we'll also be seeing the changing nature of whatever it is that turns up. And it will be a different kind of skill that's needed. The calm and concentration to whatever degree that's been developed over these three days uh, will facilitate the mind's ability to be clear and, depending on the strength of the, the samadhi, uh, the ease with which we can see 
our life, our body and our mind. Um, so that's what's coming up. That's, uh, uh, I want to get us ready for it um, with some words. Uh, remember, a few evenings ago, we, we talked about lived wisdom. Um, that is, uh, wisdom that comes from a book or from a teaching or teacher, uh, as necessary as it, as it is, is uh, not lived wisdom. And so, wisdom to be alive has to be manifested through us in our actual life. And Buddhism, or the Buddha's teaching, is a very, very comprehensive teaching. Now, you can take it on at whatever level you wish. But if you take it on in the way in which it was formulated, it really has help and guidance to offer us uh, for virtually every aspect of our life, from cleaning your room, etc., we went into the other night. In other words, it, this kind of training uh, enables the mind to take care of the tasks of daily life, some of which are quite challenging, uh, the situations which make up our life, as well as uh, the uh, exquisite penetration that's possible often in retreats just like this. And, extended periods of contemplation, uh, where the point is to go as deeply as we can into the mind uh, and to let go into freedom. Uh, when done correctly, they're really, they're the same. Because life, if you, if you have a contemplative bent, and some of you are trying it out, you may find that you're drawn to this, and many of us who are here know that we have a strong interest in what this is about. Um, includes life as well. And so lived wisdom uh, has to do with every aspect of our life. But I, I want to make clear what that means because we're going to go through uh, in a very brief way uh, where the teaching that you have been receiving and will be receiving for the next, for the rest of this retreat comes from. It's a particular uh, discourse of the Buddha called Anapanasati, the full awareness of breathing or mindfulness with breathing, it's translated in different ways. Uh, the teachings of the Buddha, you could look at the wisdom that comes from it as three kinds of wisdom. One is um, received wisdom. You could call it borrowed wisdom. You could call it second-hand wisdom. Uh, what it is is that somebody else is wise and they put it into a teaching and then we listen to it and we hear it. And then we've received that wisdom. But it, it, from the point of view of this teaching, it isn't lived wisdom yet. It isn't experiential. As fulfilling as that can be. And as helpful as that can be. And we know it can be helpful. So any of the great wisdom teachings of the world uh, start from some wise person and we receive it. And then the second a kind of wisdom um, is intellectual wisdom, where the teachings that we receive are then turned over in our mind and examined logically, uh, examined in terms of the experiences that we have of our life so far, uh, to see if what is being said makes sense. We try to puzzle out just what the essence of what is being said is, and so forth. And uh, that can be 
tremendously fulfilling uh, as the mind takes these teachings and in a sense turns it over inside, reflects on it, uh, and perhaps comes to the conclusion that it holds up, that these words are uh, words that hold up. It's still not lived teaching, lived wisdom, living wisdom. The next step is the teachings have to uh, move from the Buddha's heart to ours. First as words, and then as words that have been considered, and then uh, through the practice, through the actual experience, so that we can honestly say that we uh, understand what's being said, and we can say it because we've tasted the fruit in our own life. That's really the point. I don't think this can be overemphasized, frankly, particularly as I see it in Cambridge, but really much of the Vipassana scene is uh, made up of people who are well-educated with good intellects. And one thing that's very easy to do is to get stuck in the second one, where we have uh, had lots of education, we're sophisticated in terms of how to use ideas, how to uh, arrange them and, and work with them. And it can be tremendously fulfilling. And it can actually feel as if you now know what you're talking about. In other words, it's what is called an intellectual. No, oh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, and so, as valuable as that is, that has to be uh, translated into the, uh, the ordinariness of uh, everything we do, including our sitting practice here. It's a little bit like this. Let's say um, someone is sick and they go to a doctor. Say, so we, we go to a doctor and the doctor uh, examines us and gives us a diagnosis and then gives us a prescription uh, and for medication that will heal the particular illness. We take the prescription, we come home, we set up an altar with flowers and incense a picture of the doctor. <laughs> we put the prescription on the altar. Uh, we start bowing to it 108 times a day. We walk around it often with our hands in uh, Anjali and together. Uh, we start uh, chanting uh, two pills at breakfast, two pills at lunch, <laughs> two pills at supper. It's fulfilling, but at a certain point, nothing much is going to happen. The illness will probably still be there. So we go back to the doctor and complain. And the doctor then says, explains it to us, sees we need more, or we're not going to move our butt. So the doctor explains what the illness is, the cause of it, the particular reason that the organism is having difficulty right now, and uh, why this medication will strengthen which part of the body to offset what's happening, bringing the body back into equilibrium. Beautifully done. And we leave again satisfied. And this time we come back armed with a brilliant explanation for the whole thing, and we start arguing with everyone around us, again, about our doctor, our healing, our particular medicine, uh, pointing out brilliantly and in a very eloquent way as to how great this medicine is and how it will heal this disease. Again, nothing. You have to actually take the medicine. You have to take it. 
Okay. Now, a retreat, right now, I would say you're not in too much danger of being the first or the second one because you're held prisoner here. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, we're all holding each other prisoner here for, you know, for 10 days. But, uh, and one of the messages is that we put a tremendous emphasis not on the theoretical understanding of the Buddha, not on philosophic understanding, not on great devotion, as, as beautiful as all that is. But finally, that if you don't practice, you're not going to really know what this is about. It's just not possible. And so what I'd like to suggest is that uh, keep that in mind as we move through whatever it is we're doing for the nine or ten days here, however many days remaining. Okay. Let me give you some of the, the spirit of this teaching, the Anapanasati Sutta, or the Sanskrit would be Sutra. In it, the Buddha uh, gave 16 contemplations, all of which uh, include the breathing. Uh, I'm just going to give you some, a few highlights this evening. If you're interested, you can read the Sutta there, so now there now are some good translations and commentaries. Um, the 16 contemplations uh, break down into four sets of four. In other words, one set uh, have to do with the body. And we've been doing that. We've been working on that quite a bit. Uh, in those four contemplations, we begin by uh, paying attention to the fact that we're breathing. So we've already begun that from Friday evening on. Uh, and then... Uh, to, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase them. Instead of going through all 16, we'd be here too long. Uh, w in that particular, uh, let's just call it the, the, the body uh, collection, the field of the body, um, you get to know the breathing. You get to know the breathing and all of its different qualities, uh, subtle nuances, uh, the in-breath, the out-breath, the breath is deep and shallow, coarse and fine. Does that sound familiar? Uh, you also begin to not only get to know the breathing, but you get become sensitive to the whole body as you breathe. Uh, one of them, one of the third contemplation reads, sensitive to the whole body, the meditator breathes in. Sensitive to the whole body, the meditator breathes out. So that we're focusing on the breathing, and then slowly we start to add other things. We start to add the body, and so we are learning how to not only get to know breathing, our own breathing firsthand, but also the ways of the body and the nature of the body. Uh, one of the things that, if you haven't already seen it, you will see it in your practice, is that the breath, as subtle as it is, and in because it is so subtle, is a very powerful conditioner of the body. Uh, also a powerful conditioner of the mind, but right now we're talking about the body. And when the breath is, when you're able to maintain some continuity of mindfulness of the breathing, uh, and the breath starts becoming finer and more subtle, uh, you may find that the body feels more comfortable. 
and it's happier to sit and it can sit longer and there's less pain and you feel more energy because uh, breathing is a very, very important conditioner of the body. This shouldn't be a surprise because we come into this world with a breath and we go out when there's no breath. So obviously breath is life. And the quality of that life energy that is coming in uh, has tremendous impact. Now, we don't talk about this much, although the Buddha mentions it. It also has health value. Although the instructions, as you know, uh, over and over again, uh, encourage you to allow the breath to unfold naturally. So we're not, it's not a kind of pranayam from, from uh, hatha yoga where we're controlling the breath to get certain uh, um, beneficial outcomes. But it is a kind of pranayama. It's a kind of breath therapy without trying to be. That is, just placing mindfulness on the breath, sustaining it with some continuity, which is what we're doing, uh, has a, a, uh, a very beneficial effect on breathing. And the quality of the breathing changes because it's being touched by mindfulness, because it becomes conscious breathing. We've always been breathing. The difference is we're now making it conscious. And without trying to improve the quality of the breath, because we're not, we're not trying to control the breath in any way, it does any, it improves anyway. And so some of what comes along uh, are benefits on many, many levels. Um, and gradually, and some of you who've been practicing for a while know this, uh, the breath becomes uh, quite a, uh, a wonderful object to help you s settle down. And uh, the posture is affected by the breathing. Your concentration develops. And it's what is called acquiring a seat. That is, suddenly the mind and the body and the breathing become unified. And all the energy that's dispersed uh, is collected as the... the uh, mind and the breath and the body come together and are unified. And it's a tremendously stable feeling. You feel as if you uh, are rooted the way a tree is. This is not a small thing because uh, although so far what I'm emphasizing is really samadhi, concentration, um, although other things are happening, and I'll get to that in a moment, as the body-mind process becomes more stable as the sitting becomes planted like a tree, and of course the mind is part of that, um, you have a strong physical foundation for those times when uh, strong storms come along, just like with a, a tree. Storms of uh, fear, uh, emotional problems, painful moods, sadness, depression, anger, loneliness, you know what we human beings experience. And if you have a physical, a psychophysical stability, it's an asset. It's not the whole thing by any means, but it helps if you can be sit there because that uh, gives you some support in being able to examine what turns up. Okay. Um, in the Buddha's uh, use of language, uh, at least translated, uh, this uh, <clears throat> realm of the body, the body, the Buddha uses an unusual phrase, um, what he refers to as the body in the body. And it's important to understand this because he also uses it for the other uh, families of uh, realms of observation that we'll come to in a moment. 
what the body in the body means is the real body, not the mind body. Often what we think of as our body is, to a great extent, body image. We have a sense of our body that's in the mind, uh, gathered over years of experience and how it's been treated and comparing it to other people's bodies and uh, fashion and it's on and on, the age of the body, the shape of the body and so forth. Uh, that would be a, a mental function. So the body in the body is directing us to just the raw sensations, that the raw, uh, just body. It has no, it's not an idea. It's just what's there as you sit and are in touch with the body. And if we put it into words, you can feel heaviness or lightness or warmth or coldness or pressure or uh, all. It is a rich language, which medical doctors have, some of it's quite helpful, which talks about the condition of the body. Now, uh, what is... One of the things that's accomplished here, and it's important to go into this because it'll be true for the other uh, realms of observation as well, is we're learning to become familiar with the body. We're familiarizing ourselves with this realm in a new way. Most of us have not spent a lot of time experiencing the body from the inside with no, no, no ideas. It's not the word B-O-D-Y or any other word. It's just the isness of it. And... Uh, probably already you've uh, gotten to know your body in a slightly different way than before you came here. I don't see how you could not. Even if it hasn't been so pleasant. Uh, you're more and more getting a sense of body, what, what it's like. Or in the walking meditation, it's similar. Just when you walk, not the idea of walking or a picture of you walking or a concept of you walking, but just are there any sensations that come about as you walk? And, and, you get better and better, more sensitive to feeling them as you do that or anything else. And so it's knowing the body from the inside in a naive and innocent way without the uh, accumulated knowledge or concepts about the body. You don't need to know anatomy and physiology. In fact, many people who do have a much harder time with this exercise, with this kind of contemplation, because that keeps getting in the way. And we're learning how to turn to the body and to experience it in its many expressions. Now, I think certainly the new people, those of you who are new here, uh, almost all the questions that came up in the groups and the few ind individual interviews had to do with uh, having to sit with the condition of a body that wasn't so pleasant. And one way or another, we encourage you, without, I hope, brutalizing you, to begin to gently uh, and gradually, but clearly and decisively, uh, start to turn towards, uh, to become familiar with, even to become intimate with, uh, what it feels like, what the body feels like, the wide range of feelings. It's not always bad news. As the mind becomes more concentrated, the body feels just transparent and light, and uh, so it's whatever's there. But I'm sure you must have understood that one way or another we're getting you ready uh, to turn towards whatever that is. And sometimes what that is is unpleasant. 
So that realm is what you're being encouraged uh, to, little by little, approach, to come in closer to, to allow to be just the way it is, to uh, let it get known by you in an intimate, personal way. Known here, not conceptually. Just the isness of it. It's the best I can do. Now, um, believe it or not, this is revolutionary. Where did we get to feelings and mind states? Uh, I don't think our natural bent is to turn to what is, to be with exactly the way things are. I don't think so. If it were, I don't, uh, there would be no need for IMS. Um, some years ago, there was, uh, not that long ago, I, I read a research finding. They did a study of uh, lots of Hollywood films. And they were looking for the most frequently used line in films. And I thought it would be, I love you. But it wasn't. It was, let's get out of here. <laughs> okay. okay, so action scene after action scene is, you know, people are always getting out of some place uh, to some place better. Um, and it's not just in movies. Uh, people are driving their cars. They'd rather be golfing. They'd rather be swimming. Uh, they'd rather be anywhere but where they are. Uh, and even if they don't have the sticker, very often they're, they have a, a car phone and a cigarette and the radio is going and a cup of coffee with a special for car kind of coffee. Uh, I think I, the more hands would be needed. to, but. Uh, somehow or another, there are not as many accidents as there should be. <laughs> or people are walking around with headphones, uh, dancing to, to music, uh, and just barely in touch with where they are so they can get through wherever they are to where they want to be. Or they're watching one TV program, and then there are now sets where in the upper right-hand corner you can watch a second one, just in case this one is dragging a little bit. <laughs> So uh, we're on the run. You know, we're always getting to some place extremely important, apparently, that's much better than where we are. Like, uh, I think Michael hinted at it, uh, probably had lots of thoughts, maybe exciting ones, about coming here. And then once you get here, you're going to have thoughts about going back to where you were going. And so it goes. Okay. Uh, practice is a gentle, determined, unrelenting, I would say ruthless, finally. And our job is to do it in as humane a way as possible. To at least some of the time, not say let's get out of here, but let's stick around for a while. Because it's not just the outer body that we're talking about that wants to go from X to Y in the hope that Y will be much better than X is, but the mind states. Uh, because finally that's the cause of it all. Uh, we don't like what's in our mind. We don't want to know what it is. We don't want to feel what we're feeling. We don't want to often think what we're thinking. But there it is, very powerfully, and we are brilliant at escaping. We have many, many escapes, uh, much better than Houdini. Um, and they don't work. Uh, this came out in one of the, in, in the discussion group this morning. Uh, 
for me personally, a turning point in my practice was a number of years ago uh, when I realized that there was no escape from suffering. Uh, we went over that a bit in the, this morning's group, and I'd like to uh, repeat that a little bit. There's no escape, meaning not that there isn't an end to unnecessary suffering, but there's no escape from it. Escape just perpetuates it. Uh, the only way to end it, and this is for you to try and test and see if this medicine really works, uh, is to enter into it, is to open up to it, is to receive it. And that is not uh, common. That's not our uh, impulse is not to do that. Uh, we uh, like to separate from anything that's unpleasant or painful or that isn't exactly the way we want it to be. The practice is, I would say, now and forever, constantly trying to get us to focus on what is, just the way it is, right here, right now. And the mind has tremendous amount of training and, uh, to get to what should be, or to get back to what used to be. And there's always, very often a gap between just the actuality of what's happening, just this moment, this body, the way it is, the body in the body, and our yearnings and notions and apprehensions and so forth. Uh, freedom comes through facing life, through opening up to what's there. Uh, in, the, um, in the Buddhist teaching, suffering, as you all know, you hear that a lot, and people who misunderstand the Buddhist teaching think it's a pessimistic approach to life. But if you understand the whole thing, it's realistic. Obviously, I think so, because I'm, I'm here. But uh, suffering is a gateway to freedom. But only if you know how to relate to it. If you're constantly escaping or trying to escape, and escapes can be blatant ones, where we simply just uh, absorb in whatever it is. You see it in little children. You know, they're agitated, unhappy, you give the child a little a new toy, the child is absorbed, not a problem anymore, until it wears thin. And then once again it begins, wah, wah, wah. Okay. But we're like that too, but we have much uh, bigger and better toys. We have all kinds of things to absorb into, ranging from food to books to movies to you name it. I don't have to, the, the modern society is probably richer than any other culture that, that's existed that we know of in providing us things to absorb into. And then uh, you get more sophisticated forms of escape uh, where uh, we put up with things for years. We cope with them, things that we know should stop in our life. We don't face them. We don't act on them. We don't live our understanding. And we just have this incredible in endurance, this capacity to put up with some uh, aspect of our behavior or character that we know is... Uh, destroying, destructive to us. We don't, can't do it forever, and it's quite costly. We know how to deny, we know how to repress. We also, as mentioned, we know how to use our brilliant intellects to explain it all away. You know, something happens, even in practice. Well, if you know what Freud or Jung or Buddha said about it, what more do you need to do? It's very fulfilling. You just bring the right ex explanation from Buddha about it, and you do feel better.
but I don't know if there's uh, a real transformation. Because the real transformation comes from inner work. Gandhi uh, turned a whole nation around through the power of his nonviolence. Uh, obviously, he'd done an enormous amount of work on himself. But as soon as he was killed, his followers were helpless, and it became a bloodbath because they needed his strength to hold them there. But they didn't have the same inner development, by and large. And so that isn't lived wisdom. The wisdom wasn't theirs yet. They were, uh, in a sense, living off Gandhi's strength. The approach of the Buddha is to not even live off the Buddha's strength. The Buddha is saying, Buddhas only point the way. Each one of us has to walk the path by ourself. Now, I don't know what those of you knew, what you expected uh, when you came here, but that's a very important feature. There's help, friendship, sangha, community, uh, good food, you know, whatever it takes to help us stay with it and not let's get out of here. Uh, but you can see that, so it's a central theme in practice. Now, in Anapanasati, uh, the early, the first kinds of practices have to do with first getting to know the body intimately in the sense in which I just described. Moving on to feelings. Feelings uh, here are not emotions as we think of them, but are uh, the tendencies to experience the sensory world as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And so all day long, things are coming through all the sense doors, and we experience them as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And it has tremendous consequences. By and large, we don't like what's unpleasant. We want to, we're averse to it. We want to negate it, annihilate it, or get away from it. And what's pleasant is we, there's a tendency to want it to possess it, to grasp onto it, to hold it, keep it. Sometimes it's neutral, and it's none of those. Perhaps we just get bored or space out. So that realm, again, the Buddha says, feelings in the feelings. That means those, uh, for example, a, a good way to do this, and in the sutra itself, uh, the breath, we don't just use the breath just to calm and concentrate the mind and then drop it. So that when you're observing feelings, the awareness would be anchored in the breathing. The awareness would be anchored in the breathing. And from that place, uh, and it gets more and more calm if you do it uh, with some regularity, from that place, let's say, you can experience the feelings in the body. Try it. You know, the instructions starting tomorrow will make it possible for us to explore all kinds of things. So that you could be sitting and breathing, and uh, while you're sitting and breathing, uh, there are sensations in the, uh, some part of your body. Maybe they're pleasant, maybe they're unpleasant. Uh, can you experience them with equanimity? That is, not trying to hold on to them, to get rid of them, in other words, without reactivity, in an unbiased way. Can you be mindful of them? Mindfulness is not for or against what it's mindful of. It's just mindful, like a clear mirror. It just shows you what's there. And so, uh, the training would be how to stay with that, with the feelings and the feelings. And again, the tendency would be to let's get out of here in regard to those feelings as well. Um, when we get to mind states, 
it's a little bit more, uh, it gets more and more subtle and complex. As you can see, we start with the body, which is the most accessible. We go on to feelings. And from there, uh, the realm is of the mind itself. As we sit and breathe, uh, I think I'm going to, with Michael's permission, go a little bit over. Yeah. <laughs> what? Feel free. Okay. Okay. I don't think I'll take more than ju- ju- just be about five minutes over. You don't like that walking meditation stuff anyway, do you? <laughs> so damn slow. You know? <laughs> okay. When we start looking at the mind directly, and again, the Buddha says the same thing: the mind in the mind. Uh, one of the main things that we would be aware of, and these are what we will be doing this, you know, as, and you, tomorrow will be more concrete instructions to help us do it. You're sitting and breathing. And as you're sitting and breathing, uh, you can become aware of uh, what the mind is producing. And in particular, three kinds of mental fabrications or creations are tremendously important to get to know become intimate and familiar with. Uh, one has to do with the tendencies. You probably have, those of you who have read some books on this subject have heard about greed, hatred, and delusion. The chilesis, those uh, toxins or um, pollutants of the mind that um, have made life so much, that, is, that have contributed to, to the suffering because we're so much under the control of these powerful tendencies. The first one is the tendency to want want something badly. The second one is the tendency to not want. And the third is a kind of confusion, uh, ambivalence, uh, fog, darkness. Uh, Those three are very common mind states. Now, you may not think so, but as you look more carefully, uh, because some of them are extolled. You know, we're told that it's great to just want, want. You don't want enough. Just start want, 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 want. The more you want, the better it is. For us, who are selling you something, okay. uh, we may have gone beyond our capacity. I mean, something's going on strange in the planet. But anyway, um, the challenge of practice here is as you sit and breathe, uh, you're aware of the mind, what it's like when the mind is in a state of wanting. That is, it feels deficient. It feels... Uh, there's an inadequate, there's a hole there, some, something needs to be filled. What does that feel like? But also, what does it feel like when the mind is not wanting? When it's just right there and okay with however it is? What's it like when the mind is averse to whatever? Uh, in contention, uh, um, striking out against, friction. What's that like? And what's it like when the mind isn't like that? What's it like when the mind is perplexed, confused, um, puzzled, ambivalent. And what's it like when the mind is clear, crystal clear, radiant? So uh, as you sit and breathe, uh, you come to know the different mind states. And then the fourth is pure wisdom. So the first, we've been learning how to breathe with the body, all the different expressions of bodily life, The second is how to breathe with feelings. The third is how to breathe with the different uh, creations of the mind. And the fourth is breathing with the nature of things. Uh, And this is where pure insight meditation begins. 
you already get insights, even though you've been officially practicing samadhi. Haven't you learned something about yourself? Haven't you seen how everything is changing and it's changing in an uncertain way? We don't know what's going to happen. Sittings are wonderful and then they're terrible and we love it here and we hate it here. Uh, you're beginning to see that. Okay. Uh, the fourth, which is very, very rich, they all are, of course, is now we've this is just a scheme. It's kind of a didactic, didactic device to guide a practice, but also to teach and to learn from. Uh, we've become much more familiar with the body, so we're more at home with a wide variety of minds of bodily conditions. We've started to taste the different ways in which feelings can be, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes neutral. And we've had some experience doing that, not just theoretical, but actual. And you're getting that. And then the different uh, kinds of mind, the different flavors of mind that turn up. After a while, if you stay with this practice, uh, they start becoming more familiar. Some of them just repeat themselves over and over and over and over again. But it starts to already uh, help us a lot, just as we make friends and come to know these states. And so now that we're becoming a little bit more at ease with, oh, here comes fear, uh, because maybe we don't just run let's get out of here because there's fear, but uh, we start approaching it. Maybe it's only for a few moments, but we start to learn how to come in close to the fear, how to, it's just energy, how to see what that energy is about. What does it mean when, when we're afraid? Okay. In the fourth, so, that, so that now you're in a position and your samadhi has gotten stronger because you've also been putting in time, putting in time with the breath exclusively. We, we, that's not over. It's not like that's kindergarten. That's an ongoing practice where you take up the breathing in an exclusive way and fine-tune your instrument, which is awareness, mindfulness, tension, whatever. So that now, as the, the samadhi starts to get stronger and it's relative to each individual, and we start to become a bit more familiar with the wide variety of experiences that a human being is made up of, that in a sense pass through us, or that are us in a, in a certain way of, of speaking, now... Uh, breathing with the way things are, or with the nature of things, is beginning to see that whatever it was of the body that, we, that we've already gotten to know a little bit better, whatever it was of feelings that we've gotten to know a bit better, and whatever mind states we've come to be a little bit more at home with, they all arise and pass away. Not one of them stays forever. They're impermanent, anicca. Their nature is to change. They are not stable. There, uh, the, no stable formations can be found there. Uh, we also begin to see that because of this, there's some suffering that comes about, uh, coming out of the fact that even when we're happy, it doesn't last. Now, of course, this all uh, presumes the old way in which we live, with a tremendous amount of craving and attachment. And uh, uh, Michael will go into some of that tomorrow evening. We also begin to see the emptiness of it all. Uh, not that it's not there and that we're hallucinating, but we begin to see that particularly what we think of as our personal identity, when we look closer, we see it's made up, uh, it's very fluid. It's made up of a passing show of concepts and ideas and images and conclusions and likes and dislikes and fears and hopes and aspirations, and none of them stay around. So which one can you point to and say, that's me, that's the real me? You can point to it, but it will soon be gone. 
And again, this is not something to be believed in, uh, tentatively to take it up as a possibility, but it's something to, that has to become living wisdom. You have to see um, intimately the impermanent nature. See, we already know that everything is impermanent, but it won't transform us at all. Not at all. Uh, one major contemplation in the Buddhist teaching is to contemplate our own death. Uh, because we all will die. Everyone in this room will, will die. That's an inescapable fact. Okay. But it's not one that we want to practice with or deal with or do anything constructive about. That's way off. Way down the road. Uh, and so the, the, the logic of the practice is the same thing. Instead of let's get out of here, the Buddha is trying to introduce us to certain realities. Not to be averse to it, or to, to fall in love with it. It's just the truth. And unless you can learn this in a very, very deep way, just being exposed to change, hearing about it, reading about it, and intellectually knowing it's obviously true, and even having experiences that we can uh, dip into from our past to know that we're different. We can look into our photograph album and see that. But, you know, if just being exposed to things would change people, then morticians, doctors, nurses, they would be all liberated beings because they're around death all the time and they would learn that life is impermanent, it's precious and impermanent, I better start practicing. But I don't think the mortician business is famous for just, uh, you know, just crammed full of enlightened beings. <laughs> because some lesson is learned, but it, isn't, it doesn't have that transformative power. So then everything turns on how we observe, how we examine what's happening to us. It's a bit like, um, it has to become intimate. It has to become our own. It's like food. You have to chew it and taste it and chew it and um, assimilate it and then it becomes part of you and you know it uh, not as an object external to yourself. It's a different kind of knowing altogether. And that's what insight meditation is about. Uh, getting to know ourselves intimately, uh, firsthand, not as a romantic concept, but from moment to moment, as you can see, those of you who are new, this is blue-collar work all the way. This is not for aristocrats, sorry. You know, it's just day in and day out, breath in and breath out. Oh, it's this way, now it's that way, now it's this way, now it's that way again, and uh, seeing it all come and go, come and go, but something happens if you're able to do that. Otherwise, we'd be wasting our time. At any rate, uh, <clears throat> let me leave you with just one more thought about this method of uh, breathing, actually, too, to not confuse us. So that the breath is used to calm and concentrate the mind. It's also used to accompany you as you examine anything happening to do with the body, anything that you have that happening to do with feelings, uh, the mind, and also... Wisdom itself, in other words, beginning to see the nature of things as you breathe in and as you breathe out. Why? Why do we have to ground ourselves in the breathing? You don't have to, really. The important thing is the clear seeing. In this particular method, conscious breathing accompanies you into it because it's one way to help you see very, very clearly. And many of you have heard of shamatha vipassana, kind of first you train in tranquility, then you train in insight. First you train in calm, then insight. Or uh, the Chinese call it serene reflection. And as a, in a, in a
two separate things and you do the first two. We've been working on calm for three days and then soon we'll go to, in quotes, insight. But that's again pedagogical because life is not chopped up into neat little blocks like that. In fact, when you're really cooking, when this method is working as it's designed to be used, uh, the awareness of breathing starts to become much stronger, much more natural, more vivid, and it's with you much more easily. That comes about if you use it a lot, not just in sitting and walking, but as we suggested, as much as possible throughout the day. So then what happens is you're practicing uh, serenity and insight at the same time. It's not like first you do serenity and then you do insight because you're grounded in the breathing and you can feel yourself calming yourself. And at the same thing, something turns up and you see its changing nature. And you see into it and through it and you let it go. And so the mind is both calming itself and seeing insightfully simultaneously. Now, if you're new to all this, you probably don't know what in the world I'm talking about. But uh, I hope it becomes a little bit more clear. Also, some of you old hands who have a practice already that's strong uh, and you don't want to do Anapanasati, Michael and I have no problem with that at all because a much more common way of practicing, which is just as good, it depends on you, whatever you, uh, works for you is fine with us, you alternate. First you use the breath in an exclusive way to calm down and concentrate and then you just watch and don't worry about the breath. So if any of you know that you want to keep practicing that way because you, uh, that's a, a really wonderful practice for you, you don't have to try every method that exists. You know, that's again the consumer madness. If you have one that's working, you don't need to know a lot of different techniques. Get one that works and, and just do it wholeheartedly and sincerely. Okay, uh, I hope this will become clearer as the retreat unfolds. I think it will as we start to actually do it. Then your questions will be about the actual experience. We just have a moment's silence. This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 12, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Aud. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.